listener production. Same but new but old but young and new and fresh. So better. Hello, hello, hello. The Sushi Mango Saucy Meatballs podcast, the updated version. New but old. Old but still new. We are old as shit. My back's hurting. My, my foot is so sore. Well, I, can't, I can't feel my shoulder. So, who are you, man? I'm James. I'm the producer. Shut of the up, po- man. Okay. A podcaster. Fake laugh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, roll it. <laughs> All right, we usually muck around at the start of this podcast, but today... We're not muck around. We're not no muck stuff around. around today. No, mm. because we have a very, very important person here in the studio with us as a very special guest. Please, ladies and gentlemen, in your cars, at home, on your treadmill, wherever you are listening to this podcast, please put your hands together for Michael Francisi. Give him a big round of applause. Yay! Come on. Thank you very much. My That's a God. good reception. Oh, thank you so much for being here in the studio with us, man. What? We've, I don't know, we've, we've been, been watching, fans we've been and watching. been watching you for a very long time. It's so, it's so bizarre. I watched you on Mike Tyson hotboxing and on yes. the Jordan Peterson podcast and, and on your Chaz, own YouTube channels yeah, and you're... now you're here with us. It's so surreal. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate well, it. Oh, I appreciate that. And the next time you give me a reception like that, make sure immigration is listening <laughs> so that... <laughs> So it'd be a lot easier to get into the country. Yeah. But, <laughs> no, they were, they were cool this time. They loved me. Pretty easy. Yeah. I mean, they always give me a little hard time. They want to talk and all that stuff. And I got to, you know, what, when, I'm reformed. When you get off the plane, does that usually I got happen? the visa. Everything's yeah. done. Legal. Everything's perfect. But I get off the plane. Francis, come to the left, please. And really? Yeah. And then we have a little chat about, you know, what happened 30 years ago and what are you doing here? And it's all in the documents anyway, but they want to ask again. Yeah. And, uh, but this time they were nice. Yeah, okay. they were nice. They but is just it a case me. of them fangirling or is it genuinely doing their jobs? I think they just want to... I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, this time the supervisor looks at me and he said, don't get in trouble. I it's, said, no problem. <laughs> yeah. it's, they, they, they never quite trust Italians 100%, don't they? Don't they? No. There's always, a, there's always something there. The Italian could do something. Let's just ask him a couple of questions. Yeah. So uh, I guess, look, let's go all the way from the, from the top. I mean, I mean, you were involved in the mob back in the day. How did you start? How did it start for you back then? Well, my dad was the underboss of the Colombo family, our family. And so he was, you know, I grew up in a life, basically. And my dad was extremely high profile. He was kind of like the John Gotti of his day in terms of media attention, law enforcement investigations. So I had it since I'm a kid. Uh, but he didn't want me to be in that life. He mm. wanted me to go to school. He wanted me to be a doctor. Son, you're going to be the first professional in the family. So that was kind of his dream. And uh, I was an athlete doing that, you know, had the normal stuff, police around all the time, investigations, my dad being arrested, going to trial three times, mm. you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, but I was managing to get through that. And then uh, he gets hit with a federal case. Uh, masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies, gets convicted, they give him 50 years. Wow. (laughs) Longest sentence for a bank robbery conspiracy case ever given up to that point. He supposedly ordered these bank robberies. So uh, he goes to jail, he goes to prison rather in 1970. I'm 19 years old and I'm in college, you know, first year. And very long story short, Joe Colombo, who's the boss of our family, kind of took me under his wing and Started meeting a lot of my dad's friends. I go see dad in uh, Leavenworth. We're in the penitentiary in a visiting room. I said, dad, bank robbery? He looked me in the eye and he said, son, I'm innocent. He said, I've been framed on this case. I'm no bank robber. And I believed him. My dad didn't lie to me, you know. So I said, what are you going to do? 50 years. You're 50 years old now. You come out at 100. You're going to die in here. 
And we made the decision, you know, because look, we had to we had to get money, we had to go for lawyers, we had to, you know, and I was the oldest of my brothers and sisters, so I decided, uh, you know, quit school and and try to help him out. And he said to me in that meeting, he said, "If you're going to be on the street, I want you on the street the right way." His mind, the right way, was to become a member of his life, and he proposed me for membership at that point. From from prison, yeah. He said, my son. Wants to be a part he's, of it. He sent word. He said, I'd like my son, you know, to be a part of my life. And uh, sent word. Joe Colombo, I don't know if you, you follow the story, but he was shot, seriously injured. During, I, the, uh, yes. during the, the, the Italian-American Italian Civil Rights League. I was 12 steps away from him when he got shot. How old were you when that happened? I was 21. He had just given, we had 50,000 people, Columbus, sir, unbelievable, right, turnout. And uh, I went up on the stage because we had a big stage right by the statue. And uh, he handed me some brochures to give out near Central Park. And uh, he said, Michael, don't worry. The league is going to help your father get out of jail. I was like so happy. I walked 12 steps away. Boom, boom, boom. The shots ring out. He's down. That was the end of that. But um, so a new boss took over and my dad sent word to him. And I connected with him and he ran the rules down to me and... For the next two and a half years, I was a recruit because you got to prove yourself. Right, Can't yeah, just, okay. you know, it doesn't matter who you are. You got to prove yourself. And then it was uh, Halloween night, 1975, that I was formally inducted. Halloween the, night. Yeah. yeah. Of so all that, nights. Does that mean you were made? Yes. So you yeah. were made then. And they opened the books just in that? They opened it. The books were closed for 20 years. So when I was a recruit, there were guys waiting 20 years to become members of that life. Because right, right. the rule was you can only make another guy when a guy got killed or, or a guy died, I shouldn't say. <laughs> well, both, both, either way. He's dead. He's dead. <laughs> you, said that, you said that quite casually, by yeah, the way. He's dead. <laughs> anyway, he's dead. He's yeah, not there he's anymore. Not Whatever way he happened, he's dead. So uh, I, was, I was being made with guys who were waiting 20 years, 21 mm. years, you know. But uh, I moved up front because out of respect for my dad, he they knew he needed help and what he was doing. So, but yeah. you know, you got to prove yourself no you matter do. what. You got to make your bones. Can I ask a question? See, I know the lingo. lingo. I'm very good. You make your bones. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got to ask a question. So, when you were made in 1975, I believe you had to take some sort of blood oath. And is this is this true? Yeah. Is it just rumors? Could you take us? Oh no, no, no. It's uh, listen. It's very serious. Mm. I mean, there's no messing around. They want you to understand the seriousness of what you were getting involved in. So, and they don't tell you till the last minute. You know, you every day, you know, is it going to happen, whatever. And then they tell you, wear a suit and come downtown, which I did almost every day. So it was no, nothing different. But that day I sensed something was going on. Anyway, that night in a catering hall that Joe Colombo's son owned, um, we met at like 11 o'clock that night. There were six of us that were being made. And uh, we were called into a room individually. The boss was seated like the head of a horseshoe configuration. The underboss, consigliere two uh, official titles, to his left and right, and then all the captains, couple regimes were alongside of them. We had about 15 in our family at that point. Walked down the aisle, stood in front of the boss, held up my hand right here, took a knife, cut my finger, some blood dropped on the floor. This is a blood oath. Cupped my hands, took a picture of a saint, Catholic saint, uh, Celtic altar card, put it in my hands, lit it aflame. Right. Didn't hurt, burned didn't quickly. Hurt? No, it was symbolic. Burns little, quick, little right? The fire in your hand, that didn't hurt? Didn't hurt. Like two <laughs> seconds. And if it did, I wouldn't have said anything. I'd have been burned too quick. <laughs> I wouldn't have, no, I can't say a word, can't right? Yeah, yeah, where's the this Neosporin afterwards? Yeah. Can I get a band aid? <laughs> yeah, Neosporin or whatever at that yeah. time. But, uh, and they said, uh, tonight, Michael Francis, you are born again into a new life, into Cosa Nostra. Mm. Violate what you know about this life, betray your brothers. You will die, burn in hell like this saint is burning in your hands. Mm. Do you accept? 
Yes, I do. That's oh, it. That's the so did that did that start? Uh, who who started the the commission? Was that like, was Lucky Luciano right. started, and Maya Lansky put it all together. And did that sort of all start around that time? That's when it really became organized nationwide. Hmm. Like there were families, but they weren't unified in any way. They weren't organized. And Luciano, after knocking off Maranzano and Mazzaria, uh, he put it all together. He got people so, from Chicago and New York and all the main cities. And he, uh, he, he made the boss of each family, there were nine families at the time, uh, be part of the commission officially. And they decided things, and you know, uh, you know, set policies and everything else. So roughly, what time? What you were talking? When Luciano did that? When Luciano created it? That was the forties. In the forties, yeah, 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 the early forties. Yeah. Before that, was it just literally? Mobs running wild type yeah, of thing. you know, the days of Capone, you know, he yeah. had the crew in Chicago. There was guys going around in New York, and they were just different families, but they never were unified in any way. Yeah. So Luciano was the one who put it all together. And did your father know Luciano? Yeah. Yeah? Well, my dad was 103 when he passed away, so he was Gee, 103. Done, there you go, yeah, yeah, 103. Wow. So he, uh, he was the oldest living made man in America without a doubt, and quite possibly in the whole world. I don't think anybody ever lived well, to that age and that life. Especially well. live, eating jail food. You guys must have smuggled some real food into yeah, it. So, so, I mean, oh, well, you, you know, know, sure know, sure Listen, the whole <laughs> idea, you had to get Italians in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. You get Italians in the kitchen, you make sure the guards are eating good, you got yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was it. Uh, going back when you were in your childhood, when your dad, because your dad was such a, a large figure, in, in the world, where when you were 12, 13, 14 years old, and they, they wanted you to be a, a doctor. That's kind but of like when a, you had, yeah. you know, Tony No Nose walking in the house, <laughs> and you know. How did you know that? Yeah. <laughs> it was actually times. Freddie No Nose. Freddie No Nose. Yeah. Freddie No Nose. Yes. True. Uh, true that was story? his name. Yeah, Freddie No Nose. What's, really? What's you one must of the, be connected. What, what's <laughs> one of the most ridiculous names that you. you you don't get much more than Freddie Nono. Although in one it was very unique. There was a guy by the name of Chicken Head. <laughs> and the reason was because he used to practice shooting. Oh, by, on well, Chicken Heads. No, Chicken yeah. Heads. Yeah. Yeah. I think them I watched yeah. an interview where you said there was another guy called Benny Eggs. Benny Eggs. And would you mind telling us why? Because he liked eggs. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. It's, just, it's that simple. I mean, there, there wasn't a lot of thought behind this. <laughs> yeah, it just, you know. Uh, so, no, so was that interesting as a young boy? Seeing all these characters around, or they were they just uncles? Or it friends? was no, it was normal to me. Yeah, yeah they right. were uncles, and you know, uh, it was just normal. Mm. You know, and uh, I mean, one a, a lot of things I respected about my dad for sure. But one thing for sure, he never brought what was going on in the outside world into yeah, the house. Okay. In the house, we were family. He didn't want to discuss it, and you got to understand the environment, which was so much different back then than it is today. Today, everything's very covert. Undercover informants, high-tech surveillance equipment, cameras on the street, witness, informants everywhere. Back then, um, when you were under investigation, they wanted you to know about it. And for a period of about 10 years, when I was a kid growing up in Brooklyn, Long Island, my dad was under investigation from seven or eight different agencies. Mm, wow. They all had a car parked around my house 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Wherever we would go, we had a parade of law enforcement vehicles following so us. You, so did you see it? You, you'd know oh, that they that wanted was them? you to be there. My uh, neighbors were getting so upset because they're sitting out there 24-7. There was one woman down the block, nice Jewish lady. She loved me. She put the hose on them one day. <laughs> Opened their car window. She put the hose. Stop sitting in front of my house. People were getting crazy, you know? 
But uh, yeah, so I grew up in that environment, and uh, you know, were you treated differently with people around because sometimes, yeah. You know? I mean, look, you know, you got treated differently by some, and then look, I'm in the schoolyard. Hey, your father's a mafia father. Boom, you fight. You know, <laughs> what are you gonna do? So. It went both ways. Yeah. Mm. So you, so obviously, made nineteen seventy five. You became a captain in nineteen eighty. Yeah. And so that's you, you quickly worked your way up. Yeah. The ranks. So you, you're, you're good at what you did. You know what? I was uh, when I when I got into the life, I was determined to do two things: get my dad out of prison, and I did get him out after ten years on parole. He ended up doing forty years on the fifty, but he was in and out five times on parole violations, mm. and each time for associating with another felon. My dad's 90 years old. He's got his fifth violation. I went to see him and uh, I said, Dad, you're 90 years old. You got to stop meeting with people. This is ridiculous. It was always for association. He said, son, what do you want me to do? I don't know anybody that's not a felon. He said, even you're a felon. <laughs> Straight <laughs> point. He was right. I said, I know, but you're allowed to see me. It took me two years to get off of his separation list. They wouldn't let us see oh, each other. Well, okay. Yeah, two years. The feds are tough. So... Um, you know, it was uh, it, it was just he was he was a rough case. But I wanted to get him out of prison, and I wanted to make money. My dad said, "This world, you make money, it, it translates to power. Not unlike the real world, course, you know, money is power." Well, we we're in the comedy. We love we're we're, we're comedians here in, in Australia. We love comedy, and and I heard once that you you spent a bit of when you were young at the Copacabana. Dean I spent Martin, a lot of time. Jerry Lewis. Everybody. Everybody. You, you will never replace the Copacabana. Intimate room, 350 people, tables about this big, everybody's smashed together. But I never was in there without having a ringside seat because my dad knew Julie Padel, the owner, very well. My dad was respected well. And I saw everybody that's everybody, from Sinatra to Sammy Davis to Dean Martin, Paul Anka, you name it. Uh, Don Rickles? Don Rickles, everybody. Yeah, yeah. Pat Cooper, uh, you name it. Bobby Darren. Oh, you know, man, I was listening to oh. them on the way here today, Bobby Darren. <laughs> and, and you were right up close with them. And then, of course, my dad knew them all, and then I got to meet everybody at that time. But it was, it was a great experience. And I will tell you this. You know, I know you've all seen Goodfellas, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Henry Hill never walked through the kitchen to get into uh, the coffee. No. <laughs> oh, that's, no. No, <laughs> no. No, he never looked as good as Ray Liotta made him look. I heard you say that once before. Now, I'm not saying, yeah, I'm not, you know, he was a nice guy, but he, he was an alcoholic, he had a drug problem, and he they puffed him up a yeah, lot in yeah. that movie. But uh, we always went in through the kitchen. Did always. you? Oh, yeah, because right. there's always a line outside. Oh, but Henry back. went through the normal door. Absolutely. Absolutely. Unless he was with Paulie Vario or something, then they might have brought him in. Okay. But on his own, no. Not in, that, in that movie, someone portrayed you in that movie. Yes, yes. In Goodfellas, right? Yes, and I don't know why. they threw. That's a whole different crew. Really? But I knew Jimmy Burke really well. I knew those guys, so... Uh, the writer, Nick Pelleggi, was a friend. He threw me in that movie, and I called him up. I said, why'd you put me in that? <laughs> he said, Michael, you had name value. You knew all those guys. So the only thing I told him, I said, well, at least you could have got him to say my name correctly. Yeah. Like, Franchisi or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> what, is it accurate, that movie? The is, movie? Yeah, is it an accurate depiction to, of the life? To a degree, yes. I mean, that's... That's one of the movies that are the most accurate. Mm. Obviously, anything Scorsese does, and mm. you know, you got a cast like that. How can you miss? But pretty accurate. Um, the most accurate movie is the 1996 HBO Gotti movie. Seen it? Have you seen it? I with have seen with Armando, Brilliant. Armando, 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 Armando,
Underrated. You got to see it. The uh, script was written right from the surveillance tapes at Gotti's Club and Angela Rodurio's house. And it was almost to the T. Everything was perfect in it. And they were brilliant. I mean, Armand played that role yeah. better than Gotti can play himself. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, it was great. Have you ever been asked to be in a movie? Several times. Really? To actually act? Yes. Really? And, and I don't want to, I'm not an actor. I don't want to act. You're I can a, play myself, you documentaries, yeah. I don't want to, yeah. I can't remember the dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. They give me a script, I said, 20 pages of dialogue? No, I can't. No. No. Give got me a, a teleprompter, maybe. You've got a movie coming out, though. I do. Yeah. 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 Is it about your life? Yes. Wow. Based upon my life. And Chaz Palmateri is writing the script. Oh, and, uh, I was going to oh, say. Chaz. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 whoa, yeah, yeah. whoa, I didn't know that. That's yeah. massive. By the, which, by the way, you have a podcast with him. I do. The Wise the, and the Wise Guy. The Wise and the Wise Guy. Yeah. I don't know. Have a listen, guys, if you haven't. It's, it's fantastic. Thank you. And I always thought one of my favorite movies of McGank's, obviously, The Godfather. Mm-hmm. But I loved Donnie Brasco. Excellent movie. Because Pacino always played that, you know, Donnie Montana and all mm-hmm. these other characters, but he's played this this mob guy. Was was Lefty really like Lefty? In my opinion, that was Pacino's greatest role. Really? He killed the role. Yeah. He was just, he was brilliant and so authentic. When I see these movies, it's all about authenticity, right? Yeah. Otherwise, it's no good. He was brilliant in yeah. that movie. Yes, he was like Lefty. He reminded me of like, uh, just my dad or my uncle was always like, you know, close the door. Because I'll get a corrente, I'll get cold. But he was smoking and eating fat stuff. All I gotta the time. tell you, no, no, no. I gotta tell you something. When I was first, when I was recruit, Tom DeBella and my captain at the time, Andrew Russo, right? I always had a nice car because I was in the car business. I used to buy cars and sell them, right? So I would come in with a Cadillac. There was a method behind it because mm. the guys see that car. Hey, Michael, could I buy that car? Yeah, sure. Bring me the cash, drive me home. You got it, right? Mm. I sold a lot of cars. I knew exactly the Cadillac and Lincoln. That was it. So. I would, uh, and they wanted me to drive, but I didn't drive. They made me sit in the back seat. And they're in the front, and both of them are smoking with the windows closed. <laughs> oh, right? my God. And I swear to God, I'm not kidding. I open up the window. Hey, what do you want to kill me with that? <laughs> Shut the window, right? When I saw that in the movie, I almost cried. I embarrassed my wife. She said, why are you laughing? I said, you're not going to get it. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. I wanted to ask you something about sit-downs. You know, when you, ha- you have a sit-down or whatever. What's that environment like? Is it like a game of chess? Yes, in a way, because there's certain rules that you have to abide by, meaning you're a made guy, I'm a made guy. We're, we have a business dispute, right? You're lying through your teeth. I know you're lying. I call you a liar, I lose the argument. I'm done. Finished. Well, okay. So you cannot be disrespectful in any way. So you had to be very strategic in how you handled yourself. I learned how to negotiate in these sit-downs. Right. To get my point across without insulting anybody or doing anything wrong. It was very strategic. But everything was in a sit-down. I'll tell you what. I would school the government, Congress, if I can get to them and tell them these are the rules. I, I guarantee we'll get a lot of stuff done. <laughs> you know, not like these guys. They can't get anything done. But, uh, yeah, they were very, very serious. Everything was resolved in a sit-down. And the boss made the decision, and it was final. That was it. No so dispute. Shake hands, get up, walk out. You may hate the guy afterwards, but you couldn't display that. So the objective was to get them to trip up? Yes. Get them to slip up? Absolutely. And that's, that's how it got I had done. to sit down with Gotti once. We had, it was right. over a flea market. Long story short, you know, we got into a dispute. I had one guy, he had the other guy. So I went to my boss at the time, and I said, I can't get along with John. 
going to a club, drink, yeah, we have a great time. But in business, nightmare, right? Had a tough ego. So uh, I said, listen, I'm going to tell him I'm going to buy him out. I want to keep the market. I said, he'll never go for it because it's going to look like he lost. So we get in there. We start talking. I said, John, the only way to resolve it is this. I said, I'm going to buy you out. I said, I'll give you a nice present, buy you out, you go away. You don't buy me out. I buy you out. <laughs> it's like the classic line. He just, he absolutely said it. And he ended up buying me out and he told everybody he beat me out of the market. But I got, I think, 270000 or something. I gave <laughs> it to him. Yeah. And three months later, three months later, the market closes. Oh, oh. Right. oh, they robbed everything out of it. You know? <laughs> That's why he wanted me out of there. So he might have come out better than me, but, you know, I don't know. I don't know how much he robbed that. You, my friend, have the... I don't know. I'm going to put this. Did you earn the most in the mob ever? Can you explain the gas... Yes. Well, listen, I mean, they said that I earned the most money since Al Capone. I mean, Ooh. but that was media that was talking. Right. That wasn't me saying that. Right. But quite honestly, I had a very good run because I had devised, along with a partner, we had devised a scheme to defraud the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. And I ran that for almost eight years. The Russian mob guys were partners with me from Brighton Beach. And at the height of our operation, I had 350 gas stations I either owned or operated. And I had 18 uh, companies that were licensed to collect tax on every gallon of gasoline. Height of our operation was selling a half a billion gallons of gas a month, taking down 20, 30, 40 cents a gallon, whatever the deals we made at that time. So we were bringing in five, six, seven, eight million dollars a week for a long time. So it was it was the most money that they had seen since the days of prohibition, no right. doubt. Because you got to understand something. We were not drug dealers. Mm. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of myths about the mob that people think because they watch the movies and television, they hear the FBI talking, and there's a lot of things that people get wrong. But um, we were not drug dealers. In my time in that life, during my era, if we dealt with drugs, we died. That was it. But I say that to people online and all the people that, you know, they read the newspaper and they think they know everything. Oh, Michael, come on. Vito Genovese was involved in drugs. I said, that wasn't my era. That was, Vito went to jail for that. True. He was a drug dealer. Italians in Italy, true. They deal big heroin dealers. But we could not do it in the U.S. Mm. at that time. So, you know, and there's a lot of myths about things that people don't know. Did you, you know. have a fear for your life? Did you have, was there a time where there was something that... You thought, okay, I'm, I might not come out of this, or... I, I got to tell you this. One of the horrors of that life, and it is a horror, you make a mistake, your best friend walks you into a room, you don't walk out again. And I had a situation which I... It was probably the only time that I was really fearful of my life because mm. I thought I was going to die. So it was very intense, very, very intense. After leaving the mob, did you experience the same level of sort of fear for your life after? Uh... No, I, I did not because I understood that I could face death if I had to. And my reasoning was, they're not going to walk me into a room. They're going to have to work to get me. Mm. And so I did what I needed to do to protect myself. Because remember, I was a good student of the life. I knew it intimately well, so I knew what I had to do to protect myself. But I, I didn't live in fear. Um, you know, I, I face what people, high-profile people might face. You know, somebody wants to make a name for themselves. There's still a lot of guys on the street. 
you know, they knock me off. It's a, it's a big deal to, to somebody, you know, yeah. guys back in New York or whatever. But other than that, um, look, I'm 72 years old. I made it this far. What do I got to worry I was, about at I was this point? I'm going to say, you must be the oldest person still living, still living that, that started that life. Uh, apart from your father, which, you know, he was... Well, but, Sammy's but, older than me. Sammy's... Uh, there's, so, there's guys no, that are older than me. when I say that, me. sorry, I mean, I mean that left a life. Well, let me, let me put some perspective into this. In, in 1986, Fortune magazine wrote uh, a, a huge article, 50 biggest and most powerful mob bosses in America. And they featured six of us. It was half the magazine. Huge story. I was in jail at the time. They locked me down. They don't like when you have that publicity because uh, the uh, author was all over television talking about us. But um, they featured six. I was one of the six. And then they had a chart with the 50 of us on there, according to Rank, Wealth, and Power, right? I was number 18 on the list. I was the youngest guy on the list. And um, it was a stupid list. They didn't ask for our tax returns, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but it sold a lot of magazines, right? Yeah. But here's not, what's not stupid about it. Out of that list, some 30-odd years later, 48 of them are dead. There you go. Number 49 is doing life in prison. I'm Ma the only one that alive and survived. Yeah. Yeah. Majority, majority killed or? Some of them died in prison. We yeah. had a war in our family. Some of the guys got killed during that time. So, uh, you know, we were a warring family to Columbus. We had a lot of, a lot of issues like that. But, uh, you know, I'm the only one alive and free. Because mm. because at that time, towards the end, they started handing out quite big sentences, didn't they? Oh, gosh. Forget it. I mean, guys, you know, one of the reasons I walked, because I said this life is in dire trouble. I mean, I'm in jail when I, you know, they locked me up on one of these cases, and guys are going under, under this RICO statute. They're going to trial. They're coming back 100 years, 150 years, 70 years. I was the youngest guy out of everybody. I said, they're going to give me 300 years if I get convicted. I'm dead. Mm. Fortunately, I beat the case that they had me in on that time. It was Giuliani indicted me on a big case. I beat it. Uh, but I said, this isn't true. This is trouble here. Mm. Then I find out that, you know, Greg Scarpa, you probably heard that mm -hmm. name, mm -hmm. very tight with us. He was a captain. He's an informant for 20 years. Oh, I'm talking to oh, wow. law for it. Yeah. I was nervous because I was with the guy almost every day. Now I'm saying, my gosh, another headache with this guy. This other guy, Willie Boy Johnson, I think you're mm -hmm. up on all this mm -hmm. stuff, right? He was a Gotti's guy, but I was Shylock and money with him. And I said, now we find out he's an informant. I'm saying, my God, it was an informant, the Rico statute. I said, we're in a lot of trouble. People were just talking, right? Yeah. And, and they were just flipping over and saying, I'm not taking the rap. I'm go and, and then it was just all breaking down. Okay, let me, let, let me, let me, you remember the line, did you see the Bronx tale? Yes. Uh -huh. Okay. Yes. Remember when he asked Sonny, Chaz, what, what, would you rather be loved or feared? Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. And Chaz said, I'd rather be feared. Well, Chaz is a good friend. I said, Chaz, you, may, you, you weren't part of that life. You don't get it. So he said, I said, better to be loved. Well, Michael, no. Let me tell you what happened. Fear was what kept us in line. You know, you make a mistake, boom, you're gone. But what happened was when the government come up with the RICO statute, they abolished parole. Sentencing guidelines now went through the roof. Uh, no more bail. You got locked up. You didn't get bail. You're either a danger to the community or a flight risk. So now you get locked up. You're inside. You can't fight your case. If you get convicted, you're getting 50 years with no parole. It means you got to do 85% of it. You're doing 40-some-odd years. Guys don't stand up under that. Mm. Yeah. So now the feds come to you and say, hey, we'll give you some money. We'll put you in a program. This guy's going to jail forever. 
Either that or you're going to jail forever. What do you want to do? So what happened was the fear of the mob was transferred to the fear of the government, and guys started flipping left yeah. and right. And is that that's when they invented the witness protection program? Right? No, well, the witness protection program was way before that. Mm. You know how they invented it? It was my father's case. Oh, really? Yeah. Right. That's oh, yeah. Right. Yes, yes. It was a hijacking oh. case, and they got the witness, and the witness first implicated my dad, then changed his mind because he told Gerald Schur, the guy that created the program, uh, Francis is going to kill me. That's what he said. And that's when the guy came up and said, this was in the uh, early 60s. He said, we got to get a program or something to protect these guys who will never get a witness. So that's what happened, and they started putting people in a program. Was there a difference between the old guard and the new guard? Oh, absolutely. Because your dad went to prison for 50 years yeah. for something he didn't do, and he Correct. never said a word. Would never talk. My was there dad, more of them back then and then and less of them in... in... Absolutely. My, my dad, his legacy meant everything in the world to him. He wanted to be the guy to die with his boots on, never talk to the law or anything like that. And, you know, I mean, I respect that principle in him, but on the same token, my whole family was destroyed as a result yeah. of... Mm. I mean, destroyed. I'm the only one that survived. Yeah. That's that's I remember well, you saying it's one of the reasons why you decided you wanted it out. Absolutely, young kids, yeah. you had young family, your wife. Yeah, yeah. I met I met this girl, 19 years old, on a movie. I was producing a movie. She was one of my dancers, right? So, 20 years old, I, I'm falling in love with her. So now I want to marry this girl. I said, Am I going to marry her? And then either I'm going to get killed or I'm going to jail for the rest of my life. What's yeah, the sense, yeah. right? That's when I started, you know, planning my exit strategy on this. And uh, I took the plea as a result of that. Because mm. remember, I beat them five times. Mm. Five times in trial, they couldn't convict me. That would have been pissed off. That's why when I told my lawyer, I said, listen, this whole gas thing, my partner became an informant. I said, I got leverage over the government. I beat them so many times. They want a conviction. Let's start to try to see if I can come out with a deal here. And we ended up, 10-year prison sentence, $15 million restitution. I had a plane and a helicopter. I, I gave it to them. I had forfeiture, I think $5 million. And uh, I married Camille in, in uh, July of 85. I went to prison in December of 85. So we were only married a couple of months. Wow. You know, but, uh, and then, you know, then it all, the, it hit the fan because it became public. I was walking away, contract on my life. My dad disowns me to feds. You're a dead man anyway. Come in and, and uh, you know, work with us. We'll put you in a program. I said, no. They put me on diesel therapy in prison. It, it was, it was, I wouldn't want anybody to go through that stuff. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it just sort of shows your character to be able to go through. Because the biggest thing for me is the last time that they got you and you were coming out of the bank, I remember hearing yes. that, right? Um, you did three years in a six-by-eight cell. Yeah, solitary. Three years. I don't want him to exaggerate. 29 months and seven days. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> oh that's all right. Then. That's, yeah. that's fine. That's don't fine. Don't, don't make it bad. Yeah, yeah. Standing up. Three <laughs> years, I wouldn't have made it. But 29 yeah. months and seven days, I made it. So what's um, that? Is, that, is that one hour a day out of this? Or no, come, no. What's you're, you're allowed by policy. They're supposed to give you five hours a week in the yard. Now, the yard is a cage. You're mm. by yourself because you can't be with other inmates. But here's what they do. The guards are lazy. So they come to you at 2 o'clock in the morning. Francis, yard time. I said, what is this, 2 o'clock? No, I'd rather go at 1 o'clock. You know, oh, you're passing up? Yeah, I'm passing. Okay, write it down that you refuse the yard. No, so no, you no. basically never so get outside. So you never get out. No. What, what, does oh, a, what does a man do to, or what does a person do to keep themselves mentally in check 
in, under those circumstances. I mean, that's, that's uh, horrific. Well, I got to tell you, I am so against isolation for young people. It will destroy them. Yeah. And I speak out again. I was in front of our Senate and everything. Speak out again. Not that they pay attention, but um, a lot of things went. Guys that couldn't handle it, I saw a lot of bad a lot of bad stuff went on. But me, you know, quite honestly, you know, I was a person of faith during that time. I just dove into my Bible. I had my wife send me books. I had a Sony Walkman. I'd listen to, you know, try to stay up with things and got through it. But I was very determined to get home to my family. Mm. So, but it That's, was rough. And and nowadays you go around to um, to football teams yeah, Everywhere. all the pro sports. Yeah, well, you're a man of faith now. Yes. You, you, yes, these days, and you give motivational talks. And Saturday so night, I'll be sharing my faith at a Catholic church because uh, they asked me to come, and while I'm here, I said I'd be happy to do that. But yeah, I mean, I share my faith all over the world. I've been probably, you know, maybe 1,600, 1,700 ministries and churches throughout that time, and people are very encouraged by it. Mm. You know, when you can, when you can come back from a bad situation and turn your life around, uh, people are very encouraged about that because a lot of people are struggling. Mm. And, you know, when you become relatable to people, because you might be in the mob, but if you're struggling with forgiveness, if you're struggling with trying to change your life, trying to, you know, improve your relationships, a lot of people relate to that. Sure. And so it's been, uh, it's been very satisfying to me because I've gotten so many people that said, Michael, you know, you've had such an impact on my life. And it means a lot. It's what keeps me going. In this. It's supposed to be very rewarding for you to... Extremely rewarding. ...to help others. Is there anything you miss? About the life? About the, about the life? Hell yeah. I mean, you know, I had a jet plane. I had a helicopter. <laughs> because I would miss <laughs> the jet plane. Seat. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I miss that the jet plane. I'd be like, oh, damn. Especially now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Gosh. No, you know, you know what I miss the most? There's nothing... You guys know it. There's nothing more powerful than this brotherhood, mm. camaraderie among guys. I got your back. You got mine. The, wherever you go in the world, you'll have somebody to back you up. Don't ever worry about your wife, your daughter, your sister, your mother. Nobody's ever going to touch them. There's power in that. Mm. And I had, you know, a lot of good guys that we were very tight with. So I miss that in a way. Um, yeah, I would never go back to it or anything else. Mm. But yeah, I mean, like I said, the life is always depicted as being a bunch of thugs running around the street, baseball batting people, killing people. Remember this. Cosa Nostra in this country had a huge presence and impact for almost 100 years mm. under very difficult conditions in America. I mean, we had authority right into the White House, you know, and we controlled all the unions. That's a lot of power. Mm. I mean, the CIA goes to Lucky Luciano to help him during World War II. The CIA comes to Lucky Luciano and guys and, and Roselli to take out Castro in Cuba. Wow. Why did it come to us? Because we had the, the juice to, why to did they, fulfill Why did things. they turn? Why did they suddenly say, okay, this, we need to take this out now? It's not, did it become not beneficial for them anymore or something along the, along the way? I'll tell you what my theory is, okay? They want to build careers. Mm. Giuliani. Yeah, they want to build careers because you got to understand... We were the most colorful guys. We were the guys with the, you know, if you go after gang bangers on the street, all right, you know, but you go after John Gotti, you go after Al Capone, mm. you go after that, you put them in jail, it builds your career. Mm. Yes. I mean, Giuliani became the mayor after that, and then he ran for president after he put everybody away. And he was doing his job, don't get me wrong. I mean, I understand we were the bad guys. He was doing what he had to do. But that's why you build careers based upon going after the mob because... 
Listen, when I was in the life, I never realized just how intriguing the life was to people outside of the life. But then I started speaking. I'm in Singapore. Singapore, right? Mm. Never was there, but I'm in Singapore. I'll never forget, my host comes in after I spoke. There's a lot of people in the audience, and they say, Mike, uh, we promised a Q&A. But don't worry about it. Singaporeans, they're very polite. They don't ask questions. They, you know, I said, great, we'll come home early. He says, we're going to put a shill in the audience. Answer one or two questions. They're great. I'm there for two hours. <laughs> John Gotti, where's Jimmy Hoffaberry? Yeah, how much <laughs> money you got? Is this movie right? I'm saying, how do these people know this? Where is Jimmy Hoffaberry, yeah. by the way? <laughs> All right, I'll make a little deal with you. Yeah. On the <laughs> I'm going to tell you this, and you can take this to the back. I have no horse in this race, right? But the order to to kill, everybody knows this, I think. It came from New York, no doubt about it. And, all right, I'm going to reveal this now. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to... Make sure we're recording. This is a a revelation. (laughs) Six years ago, a guy that I knew well, he was a Colombo guy, comes out of jail. He did 30 years. And he's in New York, and he's Mike, I got to see you. So I go in and see him respectfully. And he says, Mike, I got to tell you something. One of the shooters for Hoffa was in this jail, a guy that I knew pretty well, right? And he says, he tells me the whole story of what happened. And I said, well, why are you telling me this? He says, because so-and-so says, if you ever do a documentary or movie, he's never coming out of jail, take care of his family. He knows you'll do that. I said, okay. I said, but you're sick. You got cancer. I said, you're dying. I told him. I said, I want you to put everything on tape that you just told me. Everything. I said, I'm not going to say what I'm going to do with it, but I'm going to tell you this. If there's no body, I'm just another guy telling a story. I says, I got to know where the body is, right? So he got on tape. And uh, all I can tell you is this. I don't know where the body is, but I know it's wet. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. And now oh, I have these tapes. Somebody in production offered me a million dollars, a true story. They said, Michael, I said, but I don't know if we're going to find a body. He says, it doesn't matter. We're going to do a show about it. We'll hire a boat. We'll go out looking for it in the exact spot. I said, I'm not going to do that. Mm. Is, it, you know? is, it, is it true, well, uh, Michael, that, that even till today, you you don't have immunity for, for past crimes served, right? So if you ever get, it's, it's you, know, you need to be careful. I'm, I'm going to tell the absolute truth. Did I talk to law enforcement? Yes. Did I talk with immunity? No. I have no immunity for anything. Wow. Well, nothing. Yeah. Um, but I never talked to them about anything that can hurt somebody. Mm. And that's what, you know, people say, oh, Michael, you cooperated. I said, look, the bottom line for me, I never put anybody in prison. The other guys talked to the, hey, do you know that, uh, that Vito Genovese set up Lucky Luciano? Set him up, got him, mm. put him back in prison. Guys would talk to the police all the time, all the time. It's part of the underbelly of the life that people don't understand. But the bottom line is, I don't want to destroy somebody's family. I'm never going to put anybody in prison. Never. And uh, so why would they give me immunity? You know, they wouldn't. I have no immunity for anything. I'll tell you what, my friend. We we could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. And now we don't want, we've taken enough of your time. So thank you so much, mate. I appreciate it. Thank we, you. Uh, we, we humbly appreciate you being here, man. And uh, yeah, we can't, we're coming to the States next year. So Look me love, up. Love I'm serious. Any way that I can help when you get there, I will. Thank you so much. Say uh, do, hello to your friend Mike Tyson, by the way. This I will. I will. Mike well, just I, before I leave, I watched that. And I've never seen Mike respect another yeah, man absolutely. as as much as he respected you. Like the way he was talking to you, I've never I've never seen it. 
Yeah. It's just amazing. Well, he's, you know, and it's, and respect is mutual. Mike is uh, very intelligent. Oh, yeah. Very intelligent mm. and very honest. The pro only problem with Mike, he has no filter. Whatever's here comes right out. Yeah. That's it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Continue spreading you. the word of God and doing good things. And thank you so much for being with us here. Thank we you, really brother. We do appreciate it. Thank All you right. very, very much. And thanks for having me. I mean that. Appreciate pleasure, pleasure. it. That's it for another episode of the Saucy Meatballs podcast. That's it. Do whatever you want. We're out. We <laughs> Forget about it. Forget about it. Forget about it. <laughs>